Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska named three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network. Are you ready for season three of Discography? Yeah! We're jumping into the deep end of The Who. Not only will we go through every Studio Who album in great detail, but their story is often told between albums, so we'll be touching on non-album singles, the solo works of Keith Moon, John Entwistle, Roger Daltrey, and Pete Townsend, and some of the events that would make a record begin as a concept and land as something that would universally change the world. Discography returns to Consequence Podcast Network in January of 2019. Until then, be lucky. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to The Opus. I'm your host, Paula Mejia. The Opus is a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony that re-examines an inimitable album's re-release and ongoing legacy. In this season, we've been exploring the influence and intricacies of Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, a record that continues to shape how we tell stories in song. In our prior episode, film critics Monica Casillo and Jordan Hoffman joined me to unpack Dylan's vast life in film, from Todd Haynes' avant-garde biopic portrait I'm Not There to the forthcoming adaptation of Blood on the Tracks by Luca Guadagnino. In this episode, our season finale, I'm joined by three critics, record collectors, and Dylan fans, Jesse Jarno, Allison Fencerstock, and Jeff Slate. Together, we're discussing the distinctive bootleg culture that's thrived alongside Dylan's studio recordings, shedding some light on the myths surrounding this record, and exploring how Dylan keeps reinventing these songs in the present. Suddenly I turned around, she was standing there With silver bracelets on her wrists and flowers in her hair She walked up to me so gracefully and took my crown of thorns. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. My name is Jesse Jarno. I'm a music writer and a DJ on WFMU. I've written a a couple of books. Uh, The newest one is called Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, the Blacklist, and the Battle for the Soul of America. I'm Allison Fensterstock. I'm also a music writer. I live in New Orleans, and I'm a DJ also on WWOZ. I'm Jeff Slate, and I'm a singer-songwriter. I'm also a music journalist. I wrote the authorized biography of Roy Orbison last year with his sons, and most notably, and for our purposes, More Blood, More Tracks, the Bob Dylan Bootleg Series, Volume 14. To start, because everyone's story is shockingly beautiful and different, how did each of you find your way to Bob Dylan? He was right there in the living room when I was ready. Uh, my Both my parents were big Bob Dylan fans. My dad was at Newport in 63, 64, and 65. Didn't boo at the electric set. My parents brought me to the Bob Fest big concert in New York in 1992 as my 16th birthday present, something like that. And th- it was the same year the bootleg tapes came out or right around the first like official bootleg series. Both of those things in Confluence just sent me down the Dylan rabbit hole from which I have not yet emerged. We have kind of a similar story. We must be about the same age. I also grew up in New York, and my mom was a big Dylan fan, so we also had albums around the house. My mom took me to the famous Roseland World Gone Wrong shows. It must have been like 93. 
And I also went to this sleepaway camp when I was a kid that was run by Pete Seeger's brother and a bunch of hippies that taught at the Ethical Culture School. So I was totally primed to just get into that kind of storytelling folk music. Well, I had an older brother who I inherited some albums from, and very significantly, my brother-in-law, who was a jazz trumpet player, did sessions for anybody and everybody who called him. He was a horn player. So, you know, if the spinners or the platters or the OJs or the Commodores, whoever called who were recording at the record plant or the hit factory, he'd go in and do them. So I inherited some great records, weird stuff that most 10-year-old kids in Connecticut didn't have where I grew up. He made me a mixtape. I remember there were some things on this mixtape he made me of Hendrix and Dylan that actually scared me. I think I was probably like eight or nine. I remember Crosstown Traffic scaring me because it was such an unworldly sound, you mm-hmm. know? And there was some stuff from, I think, John Wesley Harding that just seemed really oh, creepy, yeah. right? Very unsettling. Unsettling. That's a good word, right? Exactly. <laughs> you should be a writer. No. <laughs> you know, I fell in love with him early and I really fell in love with, like most people, you know, who come to Dylan Young other people's versions of his songs, especially the birds. I was a huge birds fan as a kid. I got to college and I saw him with Petty and the Heartbreakers. I scalped two tickets, $50 each, which in 1986 was kind of crazy money. And I couldn't get anybody to go with me. Like nobody wanted to see that show. Uh, You know, Tom Petty kind of wasn't, it wasn't his moment right then in 1986. And Dylan was perceived as kind of not a great live show at that time. I remember it really vividly because there was a section of the show where he performed solo acoustic. And it could have been, for me at that age, it could have been 1966. I mean, it was just so riveting that somebody could stand there with just an acoustic guitar and have 20,000 people like you could hear a pin drop, totally in his thrall. And so then I just devoured everything. Now, I understand you've got a Dylan story with Pete Townsend. Flash forward about eight years, I was working with Pete Townsend. He was producing some demos for me. We were (laughs) having a drunken fight at a bar, and he he had picked up Freewheeling and Blood on the Tracks at Tower Records, like nice price versions of these, and he threw them on the bar. He's like, do you even know these? You know, And of course I knew them. You know, they were Blood on the Tracks and Freewheel, and I was insulted. Even the guys who are like at Townsend or Paul McCartney or any of these people You know, they talk about the people they came up with in a collegial way, like you would other writers or friends or, you know, kind of the same era. But inevitably, they talk about two people, Dylan and Jimi Hendrix, in a different way, as though they are kind of the others. Hendrix, because his career was so burned so brightly, so briefly. And Bob, because if you really dig into the art of his writing, just the words, forget, you know, anything else. There's a whole other thing going on there that seems untouchable even for people who take the craft of songwriting really seriously. So that his his thing was a challenge, like really dig into these and try to understand them and absorb them and see if you can learn some lessons from them. By 1975, the year that Blood on the Tracks was released, Bob Dylan loomed large in the public consciousness, though he wasn't as visible in public in those days. Around that time, Dylan fanatics had something else to look towards. The rise of bootleg recordings cropping up, a kind of shadow discography that lived alongside what they knew and loved. Bootlegs culled from live recordings and alternate studio takes let fans engage with a different side of their favorite artists. And Blood on the Tracks, with its raw New York sessions, became a coveted release, something fans whispered about and sometimes were able to hear. You start to get a sense behind the curtain of the person as an artist. It demystifies it to an extent. 
just like the act of creation and the way different pieces of art sort of slowly become themselves. And that's a crazy thing to learn about when you're a young listener to just be like, oh, there's this whole world that goes on into the making of things. They just didn't land in the Tower Records fully formed, which I think is something you have to realize as a consumer of art. And maybe that's the kind of thing that gets you into being a critic or being a deeper listener discovering bootlegs and live tapes was like discovering just this whole beyond world that it wasn't just they made albums and they came into stores. It was this whole active thing, a musical universe that was going on 24-7 in all these different places all the time. And bootlegs are just kind of radio transmissions from kind of like the real world of music, whereas albums somehow feel like slightly more, you know, you go to the supermarket kind of, you know, you, you pick them out like that. There was this whole other world out there of unreleased stuff. It was a different time. There's now a small group of people who obsess over these things and really love them and pour over them. Back then, these artists were <laughs> the Ariana Grandes of the day. You know, they were the people who were part of the zeitgeist. You know, Bob Dylan was the zeitgeist. I mean, he was creating it, the whole article of cloth. He was inventing the job of rock star. So people were looking for messages from this guy. What more can we get? He wasn't really releasing much content between 66 and sort of 70. So these would both whet people's appetite and satisfy the need, their hunger, for messages from this Messiah figure. Well, then you've opened the door. This is opening the floodgates. Where there's a buck to be made there'll always be someone to fill it. And that's what it was. You know, there were bootleg t-shirts, there were all kinds of merchandise to fulfill the need of people who were hungry for more information. Meet me in the morning 56 and Wabashan Meet me in the morning I'm really interested in the fact that Dylan had a hand in kickstarting the trade of illicit bootlegs. It definitely existed before Bob Dylan, but there's something about him and maybe his stature that really amplified that into something that people were interested in doing more of. I guess the Great White Wonder is sort of the thing to talk about, which was the first big rock bootleg. In the late 60s, there was a double album that came out in a plain white cover of the acetates that were circulating of his basement tapes with the band. They were songs that had been sent to friends and people who might cover them. You know, George Harrison had a copy or Clapton had a copy. You know, everybody got a copy of this because Albert Grossman wanted them to record these songs. He wasn't super active. He'd had the motorcycle accident. He was raising a family up in Woodstock, playing with these guys who became the band in the basement of Big Pink. You know, this started appearing in record stores in Greenwich Village and Los Angeles and then sort of filtered out. And that was during the period when he was kind of retired from the road in the late 60s. And the albums that he was putting out were pretty different from what people liked about him maybe in the early 60s. You know, there's great stuff about those albums as well. And I, I love them. But I think those two things combined, that void combined with his constant change, probably made him a, gr a great candidate for that. You know, and he was also such a deliberately mysterious person from the beginning. So I think the idea of a bootleg, something that even if it was sanctioned or semi-sanctioned, you know, in the either the Great White Wonder version or later the official Basement Tapes version, it has this little thrill to it of like, now we're going to see 
behind the curtain, behind the sunglasses, which I think is something that exists with all of bootleg culture. This negotiation between the listener and the performer, the listener wants to know like who the artist really is, like what really happened. They want to know like who the song's about, all the secrets. And the artist is sort of negotiating like, well, I made an album. Like I, I finished the art that I wanted to make. Like here it is. It's done. When you're in the studio, there's much more intimacy to it, you know, and there's much more privacy to it. Like it's not necessarily going to be the thing that goes out. So what's chosen from a studio session to be part of a bootleg, you would have to, I guess, consider more what you want to expose of yourself. And it seems like Dylan would never be careless about that. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely in that period aware. I mean, like, you know, Rolling Stone was covering them when, you know, the bootlegs and stuff as they came out. But, you know, something else to think about is that the official Basement tapes came out only a few months after Blood on the Tracks and were probably well in the works by that point, which are very different from the actual Basement tapes. You know, they're very cleaned up. You know, they're overdubs. They're songs that weren't recorded in the basement. And it really does speak to that idea that, you know, what an artist does in terms of public releases, is very different than what fans are trading, that there is that self-consciousness. You know, you hear bootlegs and you hear outtakes, and they're just kind of lesser versions of great songs. These are, you know, on par, sometimes better than the released versions. I mean, for me, what I love about bootlegs and live stuff, or I guess studio bootlegs, sticking to that, like outtakes and things like the other alternate blood on the tracks, is kind of the ability to sort of occupy that space of an album that I love so much. And it's like kind of a, a new way to kind of be in that place, even if it's not exactly the same thing. But it's pretty close. And, you're, you know, you're back in the same studio, back in the same era. That's such a great way to put it, to a new way to be in the same place. Because like Blood on the Tracks is such a familiar room recording all music, not just bootleg music, there's so much accidental stuff that goes into it where, you know, what sounds amazing in the room isn't necessarily going to sound amazing on tape. And sometimes what sounds amazing on tape isn't necessarily sound amazing in the room. But I love the element of chance with bootlegs where you get like hiss and crackle and like, especially in the tape era, everyone was different because you were copying them from your friends. So each, literally each generation would be slightly different. But I like, you know, about the Blood on the Tracks bootleg, one of the things that I loved about it and still love about it is that it all came from that acetate, which means that you could really hear the acetate crackle. There's that real physicality to them that makes them kind of otherworldly. You know, it's funny. I actually had a vinyl bootleg that included some of the acetate tracks in the 80s. But it was just another record with a white plain cover and a Xerox on top. Everybody was aware that there were these New York sessions. They were kind of legendary. And there were all these stories that we've learned were not really true, but they built this myth around it. It's like smile. Right. It's great and cool and interesting. But part of the reason it was legendary because we couldn't get our hands on it. Of course. Somebody's got to show their hand Time is an enemy I know you're long gone I guess it must be up to me Over time, the stories orbiting blood on the tracks have become something as big as the album itself. That Dylan fired the session musicians in New York one by one until he was completely alone. How Dylan's brother suggested he try another direction with the record, leading to a delay of the album, recording additional sessions in Minneapolis, and recutting the album. How the studio musicians were struggling to keep up with Dylan. 
how Glenn Berger, the assistant engineer on the album, remembered Dylan sarcastically asking them, was that sincere enough after a scathing take of Idiot Wind? All of which, it turns out, isn't true. We have the tapes. That never happened. 44 years later, Glenn's told that story for many, many years at cocktail parties. It's a great story. But, you know, through the mists of time and there was a lot of bad blood from musicians and Phil and Glenn and people who worked on the record because everybody felt like the New York Sessions were the better record. They didn't get proper credit. You know, there were all these things that go into that stew. And, you know, Bob's not going to address that stuff. He has no interest in talking about the past How does the More Blood, More Tracks release debunk these myths? I think the biggest one was I didn't want to focus on it being a quote-unquote divorce record. A lot of people do think of this as the breakup record of all breakup records. And I think that people do associate a lot of tough romantic times with a lot of these songs. And I am curious to hear what other narrative you think is going on here. You know, everybody loves a good breakup song. We've all been through that experience as human beings. So you get tangled up in blue and you put it on. And, oh, my God. This Oh, I'm crazy. You know, you drink some wine and you put it up louder and you got the headphones <laughs> on and you're like, Bob, you're my guy. But really, if you kind of take those songs in the cold light of day, it's much more than a breakup record. Does it speak to that experience as a human being? Of course it does. But it denigrates it. It kind of minimizes it to say it's his divorce record. There is something about his delivery and the solo acoustic nature of it and the fact that this was happening at a time when that singer-songwriter genre was really preeminent. It was a really powerful genre in 1974 5 We say it's a divorce album, and yet we're forgetting Watergate and Vietnam and Ford and Nixon and all this other stuff was happening at that time. And... You know, if you think about a guy writing about such a tumultuous era, Blood on the Tracks reflects that era kind of perfectly in so many ways, if you take the words in a more top-line sense. But it also pertains just as much to 2018. It's sort of evergreen in so many ways. So there's that too. It's that kind of album that feels like it was always there. When we got the tapes and put them in order and the session notes, and the track sheets, and Bob's notebooks, and talked to people who he had played the songs for prior to the sessions. Those were the songs as he intended them. He recorded 11 songs, I think it was, before the band even showed up. We realized almost immediately when we put the tapes up that he was there all by himself. Not only that, he was great. Everybody said, oh, he comes in, he's not prepared, he doesn't, you know, he's working on the lyrics, he's... These were performances that were from the very second Phil Ramone started running the tape could have been masters. And by all accounts, the band came in because Phil and other people were like, hey, maybe we get some other colors going on here. And Bob's like, yeah, sure, let's get some colors. You know, it's not really necessarily what he wanted. And he gives them a chance. But the band lasted 14 takes or something, 16 takes. Yeah, That's not a lot. You know, that's not a lot of work. They just happened to be the guys who were available on Rosh Hashanah in New York City on that day. Nothing to denigrate their talent, but it wasn't like they were the best and the brightest or anything. They were just the guys who happened to be available for a session that day. Meanwhile, he recorded, I think it was 36 takes that first day. I mean, that's a Herculean amount of songs for any artist. I I can't think of anybody 
who goes into the studio and records 36 songs in one session. That's an insane amount of work. Time is a jet plane. It moves too fast. Ah, but what a shame it is that all we shared can't last. I can change, I swear. See what you can do. One of the things we noticed, another myth was his brother David had convinced him to re-record it. And I interviewed Ratso Sloman, who's known Bob for a really long time, and, and he said, listen, Jeff, nobody convinces Bob to do anything Bob doesn't want to do. And if you go back and you go through it, he had lived with those songs at that point for a couple of months. He wouldn't just call up Columbia on a dime and say, pull the release that's coming out in a week for Christmas because my brother has this idea. This was something that he had been thinking about. And one of the things that we did was people who work on research for these things went back to find a primary source for that legend. And it just popped up in a biography, I think, in maybe the early 80s. There was no quote. There was no citation for it. It was just put out there as a statement. So at that point, it's just one writer's imaginings. But then it gets picked up and perpetuated. And nobody ever checks it because it was in a biography. And of course, that would have been checked. And then it becomes the story. Nobody's ever asked Bob. I think what's so interesting about this album in particular is this was at a time when Bob Dylan was already a mythic figure in the world of music and beyond it. And so to start understanding everything that went into this with the bootlegs and seeing how he tinkered with things and how it wasn't this fully formed thing immediately, especially when you're a young consumer of art, you tend to think that people who you know have been struck by genius, like that's it, like they're able to do that. But then Having this really helps demystify it. But that being said, there are a lot of different myths that have persisted along with this record that I think have helped amplify that too. Because I got the bootleg series like right at the same moment that I was diving into Dylan, like part of Dylan's myth was that he wrote all these songs that he didn't finish or didn't put out or that there was kind of this like secret part of him that was not what was displayed on the album. So that was part of my indoctrination into Bob Dylan was there's something cryptic about his music and it, it just sort of made it even more cryptic that there were all these like secret recordings that you couldn't just get, or at least then you couldn't just get. Two CDs came out around 94, 95 when bootlegs were making it to CD and they were in better quality. They were DAT tapes that had leaked out. One was called The New York Sessions and one was called Blood on the Tapes. One was the acetate, and one collected kind of everything from those sessions that was commonly available. And I was just like, you know, I couldn't get enough of those. I just started obsessively collecting bootlegs and amassed a really kind of shameful collection. Reading the liner notes of the bootleg series was like, oh, I should go looking for these other things. The bootleg series came out, and you suddenly realize there's this massive iceberg underneath the tip that you see, which is just the CD you buy at Tower. If I was just like a little bit younger or a little bit older, it probably wouldn't have landed on me like such an explosion. But it was all of this information available, you know, about the process and the mythology and everything that went into making it. I think that's probably what got me hooked was the timing. I mean, another thing that Blood on the Tracks and the Blood on the Tracks acetate are, you know, responsible for maybe in some small way is now it's totally normal practice for artists to put out multiple versions of the same thing where there'll be like a bonus disc with an acoustic version or a demo version. You know, deluxe editions of albums come out 
sometimes with even like within like a year, which boggles my mind. To me, that traces back to that breakthrough of Dylan's cracking into that audience for that sort of thing and making people aware that there is one. Then, of course, there's a legendary Red Notebook, which had been whispered about for years before finally being released. In it, we can see Dylan's tiny, precise handwriting mapping out how these songs would evolve. I mean, the Red Notebook is, you know, kind of this mythical thing that, you know, is often a museum or a private collector's hands. It's just the idea that there is this document that some people have seen that shows these songs evolving. I didn't realize that it had been stolen from him and circulated among these kind of super collectors for a long time. It's very cool to have that put into the hands of fans as yeah. well. It's a little bit terrifying, too. He's this incredibly elusive, private creature that just feeds the hunger, you know, for physical access to him. I mean, something like the Red Notebook, when you can actually see concrete evidence right up in your face that he's like a human being who uses a pencil <laughs> and has handwriting. It is terrifying. There is that terrifying extreme of Bob Dylan fans. You know, I guess I should invoke A.J. Weberman here, who literally went through Dylan's trash and created like this, you know, garbology. Whether you think that's a prank <laughs> or something that A.J. Weberman took seriously, Bob Dylan was definitely freaked out by that. And then people bootlegged the recordings that Bob Dylan left on A.J. Weberman's answering machine. Like, it's legitimately terrifying how up in Dylan's stuff people sometimes get. And there was something kind of a little weird that the Red Notebook was out there in the world. So it is, it's nice that it's now officially sanctioned. You don't have to feel that guilty about looking at it. I think that speaks to just a whole part of bootleg culture in general, like we were talking about. Even if it is sanctioned, it has this little shimmer of secret access, of special access to something unofficial or backstage, or even if like the musical content isn't like revelatory, it's almost that access that's what's being sold. And I've never gotten used to it. I've just learned to turn it off. Either I'm too sensitive or else I'm getting soft. Dylan himself is continuing to reinvent these songs into the present, too. He still tinkers with them in performances, breathing new life into them as we barrel on into the future. I started going to see Dylan live. He would be playing sometimes these Blood on the Track songs, and, you know, they would have different lyrics or just different feels. They didn't stay perfectly formed. He kept tinkering with them. And even on that first Rolling Thunder review tour, just basically less than a year after, after writing the songs, they kept changing especially being a newspaper music critic for a long time, which involves reviewing a lot of legacy artists that come to the local stadium. People with a massive body of work essentially just play tributes to themselves. They play these pitch-perfect sets of all of the most recognizable songs. And when you see Dylan, you can be sitting there and barely recognize Tangled Up in Blue until it's like halfway through. I and mean, I just saw him like three or four weeks ago in Mobile. And it was different than when I saw him in like 2016 in New Orleans. Like he's up there kind of working it out and enjoying himself. Mm -hmm. And that's a much different experience for a live performance than just seeing someone like reenact every single beat and breath and pause that was on the album. I saw him less than a week ago. I saw him at the Beacon at the third to last night of his um, week-long run there. Same experience as, as Allison, basically. Like I saw him last time through the Beacon where he's doing, you know, a lot of the sort of the Sinatra-connected material, a lot of the, the sort of the standards. And... This year, it was almost like how he would change from 1964 to 65 to 66. It's like a completely different Bob Dylan. 
And, you know, there is still a difference between 2018 Bob Dylan and 2017 Bob Dylan. You know, he did Simple Twist of Fate, writing new verses. The new verse was something like, you know, there's a note left behind. What did it say? It said, you should have met me back in 58, which is like, I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about that <laughs> rewrite. But, but I, again, I just like that those things are still in motion. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like a jazz musician, you know, or like the folk tradition itself. It's just the songs and the melodies and the stories are alive and they can keep getting tweaked and combined with each other. And like Jesse was saying about Simple Twist of Fate, the version he did in Mobile was like this very jazzy kind of Tin Pan Alley version. Mm. Yeah. And you have to think like that's not a coincidence when it's someone who's thinking about the entire breadth of Western popular music and storytelling. He's like making a connection between himself and that very important American tradition of songwriting. She dropped a coin into the cup of a blind man at the gate and forgot about a simple twist of fate. It's been a blast exploring Blood on the Tracks further with each of you. The next season of The Opus, coming in January, will chronicle the expansive influence of Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. And if you enjoy our dissections of legendary albums, you might also love another one of our Consequence Podcast Network series, Discography, which explores a legendary discography record by record. Prior seasons have covered Frank Zappa and Janet Jackson, two of my personal favorites, and season three is the biggest of all. Host Mark with a C is deconstructing the entire discography of The Who. Not just the band, but also every single solo record by Pete Townsend, Keith Moon, John Entwistle, and Roger Daltrey. It's a startling portrait of these legendary artists that you won't want to miss. That's coming in January, too. So be sure to subscribe to Discography and stay tuned to the Opus for new journeys into the greatest records ever made. If you like what we do and want to hear more, let us know. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. For example, here's a recent review entitled Insightful Conversation, Grateful for the Opus by Sean Gayard. What a sharp and resonating podcast that does justice to an album that many have a strong emotional tie to in myriad ways. I'm grateful for this opus and the lending of rich, diverse voices to the Dylan of. Exciting to see more deep dives into this album this season. Count me in for the Opus fan club. Thanks so much, Sean. I super appreciate you listening and for leaving that review. And hey, our quest with Dylan might be done for now, but the Dylan camp is continuing to put out awesome stuff even when we're not talking about it. Be sure to follow Bob Dylan on Spotify and Apple to keep abreast of his latest music. And while we're at it, support your local record store. Without brick and mortar shops, there'd be no bootlegs, no myths, no opus, and certainly no bootleg series. If you haven't lately, pop on down to your local shop, flip through the bins, and maybe pick up more blood, more tracks while you're at it. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theopuscpn. Check out our Dylan editorials on consequenceofsound.net and stick around as we gear up for the Opus Electric Ladyland edition. The Opus is written by Paula Mejia and recorded in New York City at ACAST by Taylor Dalton and Tim Ruggieri. It's edited and produced by Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman. Our theme music is by Coach Hop. Find out more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. Series artwork is by Stephen Fish. Special thanks to Allison Fencerstock, Jesse Jarno, and Jeff Slate for their time and insights. Consequence Podcast Network. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. 
Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.